Hi everyone, welcome to the LCF Careers podcast series, Careers in Fashion. So our discussion today will be led by final year BA hair, makeup and prosthetics students Bethan and Ellie, uh, who are joined by Emmy Award winning makeup artist Michael Key. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So uh, today we'll be investigating the relationship between traditional makeup artistry and digital technology. Join us to explore the impact CGI has had on this craft and to find out more about IMATS. So, Michael, thank you for joining us today. Can you tell us a little bit about your career and what you've done so far? Will that be my exotic dancing career or the dance <laughs> career? Or... Whatever strand of career you want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, uh, it's, gosh, it's been such an interesting path so far. Yeah, just the Reader's Digest version. I kind of started off in life thinking I was going to be a musician, and then I did a left turn at age 24 because I found out that being a musician is not necessarily a predictable trajectory for a career. And so that changed and I just happened I ended up going over to movies and television, which was great. I grew up in you know in Los Angeles, you can tell from my outrageous American <laughs> accent that uh, I'm not from here. But if, you, if you're a Burbank kid, you either work in aerospace or you work in entertainment. A lot of my relatives worked in aerospace, but that wasn't you know, my destiny. And so, yeah, it was kind of music in the beginning, but then went over to doing makeup. I thought, well, while I'm waiting for music to work, the people that do this for the movies probably make a good living and was a lot better than my day job. So I started off in, you know, in television and doing commercials. You know, everybody does when they start off in the industry, just kind of take whatever gig you can get. And eventually ended up at NBC Studios when they were still in Burbank, and they taught me, you know, beauty and, and television makeup, which was combining that with what I was doing really more in special makeup effects. That was really something that changed my trajectory, I, and I became a full-service makeup artist, which I'm really glad that that happened. That was a great opportunity. And did seven years on the Star Trek franchise, which was great. Star Trek bought my first house. <laughs> so uh, there's actually a Facebook group. It's called Star Trek uh, Paid for My Mortgage or something like that, <laughs> for those of us that worked on it. And so, yeah, I'm one of those. And, uh, yeah, I was fortunate to work with some great artists and have amazing opportunities. been super blessed to be able to do that. And then not looking for a career change because I was pretty happy. I was winning awards and it was going well, but I saw that the industry did not have a magazine that represented makeup artistry. That people don't always understand what's been achieved. You know, there can be some real magic that's happened, but the illusion can be so seamless you don't even know. Here's a great case in point. Gary Oldman is Sir Winston Churchill. Yeah. Unless you know that it's Gary Oldman and understand that, then you just you take it for what it is. You, that's it. Uh, so there's need to bring, you know, the awareness of what makeup artistry is doing. There are some women that you, they're, they're considered very beautiful and 
and very striking. And when you see them before all that, it's like, oh, okay, there's a lot that's been achieved. <laughs> so I wanted to create more awareness for makeup artistry and I felt a great vehicle in which to do that would be a magazine. I looked at other behind the scenes movie magazines like uh, American Cinematographer, which has been around since like the 30s, I think. And I had several copies of that, not because I wanted to be a cinematographer, but because I was interested in the films they were covering. But as a byproduct of looking at those magazines, I learned to, to appreciate a bit more what the cinematographer and the camera team contributed to the picture. So I felt that uh, the industry needed that magazine. And so just doing it on the dining room table, something I figured, oh, we're going to do a little something on the side here. We can do this and not knowing what I sat in motion was, was going to not only be a career change for me, but create a legacy for what we have here. You know, Makeup Arts Magazine now is in its 23rd year, and That's amazing. there are some people reading that they weren't born when we first started doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, case in point. It's really a trip. Uh, there was a girl I was taking around yesterday. We were visiting, you know, lots of schools mm -hmm. looking for yours, and we brought the first place winner from Battle of the Brushes last year. And just realizing, oh, that's right, you you were born at the same time my magazine was born. <laughs> but so yeah, so now we have it where there's all these people that have grown up on Makeup Artist Magazine and IMAPs and and how it's helped inspire and in some cases was the spark that made them decide to go into makeup artistry. All that started, I didn't know that was happening when, when I started a magazine in 1996. And six months later, uh, we started IMATS. Pretty ambitious, but there, I guess it was just amazed there was no experience, you know, an event that was celebrating makeup artistry. Cosmetics is a billion dollar industry. Why has no one done this? Well, luckily they hadn't, so, <laughs> yeah. so we did. Thanks for the opportunity. So with IMAX being running since 1997, how have you seen the industry evolve in this time? I started the show to promote the magazine. Okay. You remember mid-90s, well you guys wouldn't remember, but <laughs> mid-90s there is no social media. The internet's still pretty new. Search engines, they weren't very good. And email was still pretty new. A lot of companies didn't even have websites, much less email. So you have to kind of think of the context of the times. and. My magazine was known in Hollywood because that's my tribe. You know, I was thinking, it'd be great if we had this like neon sign that could be turned on for a few minutes for the whole planet to see that there's a magazine for makeup artistry. So we were trying to figure out how to do that. It's a bit like trying to pave a road that you're wanting to drive on. And so I was looking for that and I didn't have a background in publishing. So I started talking to people I considered the real professionals and said, how do you grow your trade magazine? And they said, well, you go to trade shows. Oh, seemed like a reasonable answer to me. <laughs> so I uh, started talking to my advertisers and said, which shows are you participating in? Because if it's working for you, then it's one we should consider. And the answers that came back were, well, we tried this show, we tried that show, there's these spa salon shows, but they're really about hair and nails. There's really not much for makeup, and actually we don't do those shows anymore. After about the 10th phone call of like almost verbatim from all these companies, and it's going, ah, we've got to do this. I figured we were positioned really well to do that. One, because of my experience, because of you know, the music background thing, so it's kind of a live event and sound systems and, and all of that. Combining that with what I was doing in motion pictures and television, which is lighting and composition and just you know, combining all those things together to be able to make an event. And industry leaders said, ah, I don't think you have a business model that's sustainable. There's just not enough makeup people for this to work. 
which is hilarious to me now because <laughs> there's all these other shows that have been inspired by what we do and they kind of create their own flavor of that. And there's a number of different types of shows out there now. And they were saying we couldn't even support one. So we've seen a tremendous amount of change because we have caused a lot of cross-pollinization that's happened in the industry. By one, the magazine being able to share ideas globally. Prior to that, there was no way to do that. And so since we did have a global audience in 70 countries, pretty quickly actually, very thin, but we were in all those. Tower Records was what helped. Do you guys remember Tower Records at all? <laughs> she does. Yeah, it was a, uh, got this weird phone call one day when we were still doing it out of my house. My wife said, there's a guy from Tower Records on the phone. I said, oh, okay. You on the phone, hi, this is Michael, can I help you? And he says, yeah, yeah I got your uh, magazine here. And uh, yeah, I think, I think we could do this, yeah. Michael. Who is this guy? Who's messing with me? What's going on? I don't even know what he's talking about. He goes, yeah, I think we'd like to have a, you know, let's, let's just start with 300 copies of your next issue. I said, oh, great. So, great, where are all the bees? He said, oh, yeah, we'll send it to all these uh, uh, our stores around the world. And I didn't realize that Tower Records was like Hong Kong and this is everywhere. And that made it possible for our second, that was our first issue he was looking at which was very homespun. And starting with issue two, we were global. We were in all these places. And Tower Records was good because you know, media savvy people would go to Tower Records. And so they would find out about it. That really helped spread the word. But uh, so the magazines helped cross-pollinate, but so was IMS because we bring speakers from different places. So it's all that back and forth, which is so great because it's different techniques and different approaches and everybody learns from everybody else. So the digital world has such an impact on today's society. How has CGI affected makeup artistry and is it a dual market? Yeah, that's a complicated one because digital technology in general, not just specific to our industry, causes interesting changes and fears and, and people have to adapt to it. Let me move back, I'll use a musical analogy in which to do that. In the 80s, they came up with the drum machine. That was a new thing. It was called the Lynn drum machine. And it took samples of the sounding of you know, some of the top drummers in the world, and they were able to program that. And drummers got really insecure about it. I remember talk that, oh yeah, yeah, in 10 years, you won't have any real drummers playing on records because it, people become so accustomed to it being perfect and drummers were worried that they were going to lose the work that they were in the recording studios. Well, it didn't happen with all that fear because there's the best person to program a drum machine or, or anything of that same idea is a drummer. They understand it and they, and they get it. And there's, you know, there's plenty of drummers today. We haven't lost drummers. They're still in there. In the same way, you know, it's the same idea when CGI was coming along. In the beginnings, of course, it was really poor, and nobody thought much about it. Then Gollum happened, <laughs> and then uh, the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. When that happened, it's the first time you felt like, actually, from just a few years before, you had Jar Jar Binks, and he just looks like a cartoon character. It's like Roger Rabbit in the way. He's just the feeling of the character. You don't feel like he's really there. There's a disconnect. There's this weird thing that's going on. And just like a couple years later, you have Gollum. That was a game changer. 
stinking Gino. He's a, an amazing sculptor, painter. Uh, he's at Weta Studios in, in uh, Wellington, New Zealand, where they you know, created all those visual effects. And so he created the paint scheme for what Gollum was supposed to be, and that's what's supposed to be the CGI. He's supposed to take that and replicate that into the character. But he's such an amazing painter he can take something that's very opaque and he can create all these layers and textures and translucencies to make it look like it's translucent. And eventually they, you know, they tr tried and tried and tried and they came back and they said, we can't figure out how you do this. You, you, you and so he tried to show them. He tried to show them in an analog sense of what he does with the airbrush and the, all those different techniques. And eventually they just became overwhelmed with it. They just get, this is way, way too intense and complicated. We can't do that. What if we bring a computer here in your, in your workshop on that side of Weta and maybe you can kind of do that, you know, in a way digitally what you're doing with this. So he agreed to do it for a time and then eventually he, he's moved over to what we call to the dark side and that he's completely all CGI. He's part of Weta Digital, which he regrets sometimes. But that was what changed. For, Gollum was a tangible, compelling character. He really was. Of course, you got Andy um, Circus, I think Circus is his name. And what an incredible performer he is. So that really helped a lot. And so that's like, damn it, they're doing it. Oh, Jurassic Park was another one too. Like, we got our digital dinosaurs running and doing that. <laughs> so of course there is that fear about, wow, we won't need to do that anymore. We won't have to have the hours in the chair. The actor won't have to endure all of that. The curious case of Benjamin Button. We saw a lot of that with Brad Pitt where they were you know, just putting his head on another person's body and doing a lot of things, just a bunch of dots, and that's it. And we see Avatar, where it's being done at a different degree, but we're still doing makeups today. We're, we haven't stopped. Where it's really changed has been in commercials. It used to be uh, people would make good money in puppeteering. I know a guy who bought a house for puppeteering a talking toilet. <laughs> it's a silly, goofy thing, but he made enough money on that for the puppeteering part to buy an entire house, which is pretty cool. But yeah, they don't do those kinds of things for commercials much because they're so quick, they're over in seconds. Anything that's puppeteered, they don't do that in commercials really anymore. But they're still being done in film. Look at Avatar, they're still having to do all these registration dots on all the people that are having to do that. They're, the people that are creating the designs for the makeup are usually still makeup people. So they haven't gone away. Look at all the things that are up for the Oscar and BAFTA now. So there's Vice, which is interesting. And I was thinking about that this morning. I was thinking, Vice, okay, it's, you're taking a, a guy and making him to kind of an older, balding, fat man. Wait, 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 that's what we did last year. That's what happened with Gary Oldman. So that's how you get, win an Oscar, I guess, now, is you, you gotta do that. So you've got Vice and, you know, what a compelling performance. It's amazing. And so is, you know, the other ones are there. Stan and Ollie. It's a beautiful, beautiful work by Oscar winner Mark Coulier. Taking John C. Riley and, and transforming him. Actors want to see what they're going to look like. Their performance is different. Many times they don't know who they, their character is until they, ah, they see it in the makeup and now they understand it. And so it really affects their performance. Also the performance of the people they're playing opposite of. How do you think in the case of Gary Oldman, he doesn't look anything like Winston Churchill. So for everybody else to try to engage with him in that, it it's really contributes to the process for, for the performers. So it's not really going away. There are some things like making people younger. 
we're seeing more of that that gets better. Saw that in an X-Men film a few years ago where it was, eh, it's a little, yeah, almost there, but not quite, but there was uh, another film just done this year, I think it was, where they are doing those kind of anti-aging because they need to go back for these flashbacks. So they are getting better at that, and they are doing different kinds of corrections that are in post, they're able to do and touch up things. So it's, it's, it's more tools. There's, no, there's more makeup people today than there was 10 years ago. And at that time, there was more makeup people than there were the 10 years prior to that. So it's not like people are losing jobs, the jobs are just changing. Going back to IMAX, the Battle of the Brushes is yeah. one of the main focuses, especially for students. It shows a variety of artistry skills. What do you look for in applicants and how can students apply? Well, they have to be a, either a current student or have graduated within 12 months in order to participate at the, the day of the event. So we do that to try to keep it a very level playing field. We don't want someone who's been in the industry for five years competing with someone with a current student. It wouldn't be fair. So that they have to be in a school and set the timeline that's there. And then what we're looking for is just a few photos. I'm looking for an artist, really, whether it's the prosthetic character or the beauty fantasy. Beauty fantasy, you know, when someone's new, they got their little bag of tricks and they got the little shtick that they do and they put it on the same woman, regardless of what the woman looks like, they're doing the same shtick rather than looking at that face and saying, what does this face need? They're like snowflakes. They're not, you know, trying to do something with a rubber stamp and put it on everyone. I'm looking to see, I mean, if the girl is beautiful, great. Congratulations, you got a nice looking canvas. But I want to see what you're doing to enhance. I'm more impressed really by the girl next door look when you've taken and, and made her be amazing. It's still creating some symmetry to find out which features you're going to try to emphasize, which features you're going to try to bring less attention to and bring balance to that face. It, uh, and that comes with the, you know, someone's eye. So following that, do you have any favorite looks then or favorite moments within the Battle of Brushes? Oh yeah, of course. There are probably so many. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's 22 years of this and it's, it's great to see. Well, here's an example. When the pictures, when I have them, we have a conference table. It's about, oh, at least a third bigger than this. And there's about a hundred stacks of photos. My staff put those together. So when I come in, each one of those stacks represents a potential contestant. I don't know anything about them. I don't know their age. I don't know their race, their gender, what school they went to or anything. And I don't want to know any of that stuff. I only want to see the work. And so I go through those, turn on some music obnoxiously loud, annoy my staff. <laughs> And there's usually two that are really good. It's going, wow, 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 these, these get it. And so I have this corner and I put them on that corner. And there's usually a couple that look like crap. <laughs> Looks like my cat did the makeup. It's just like, okay, Stevie Wonder could have done this makeup. Uh, and it goes off into the chair. And you don't want to go into the chair because if you go in the chair, you're probably not making it back on the table. But the vast majority, really, there's photos that are good, photos that are not so good. And there's a range of them. Sometimes you look at them and go, how? These are good pictures. How did they do these? How's the same person doing this? And I think, well, maybe those ones that are not so great were when they were just getting started. And they've evolved and grown as an artist. They've learned more why they included those. But, you know, you just kind of wrestle with those. 
And I'm looking to see see who's an artist. And we'll end up picking, like, out of that hundred, there's eight that are going to be chosen for that category. Usually we pick a couple of runners-up because life happens. Things fall out, and so you need those. But they've already done pretty darn well. You figure out of eight out of a hundred, that's good. You know, they're already outclassing a lot of their competition. What my thing is, the people that I've chosen, you look at the work that's, that they've sent in, is totally different than the work they do on the day. Because when they get that email, like, like Tara, who I took yesterday, it was great to have her share from her experience. And it was fun for me to hear that. She says, there's the day they know the announcement's gonna come out, and she couldn't sleep. She tries to go to sleep, but she says, on pins and needles, like, is it gonna happen? I don't know. And then the email comes, and says so she's, she's been accepted. And it's like, oh shit, life just got real. Uh, it's like she's crying and bawling, oh my gosh, it's really happening. And oh, I really got to get on it. And they do, and they grow tremendously as artists. They, the school will mentor them, and their focus is much greater. It's like, you know, we're going to have the best in the industry judging your work. And so they, they greatly improve, and it's like four weeks really grow. I love that to, to see the work. Oh, look at these guys. They're really stepping it up. So most shows, there's those moments. I, I really love that. That bit's great. It's also fun when they've got a model that really can sell it. Most of the time they've got a fellow classmate, their significant other, somebody that owes them money or, you know, <laughs> or something. They've either gotten somebody to do that. They're not really professional models. And so they don't know how to do it. Even actually the professional models, we have to teach them not to do what you guys teach them to do. <laughs> Which is like running baseball, man. It's like a dink, 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 dink. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We need you to slow down. We need you to milk that moment. And yeah, you know, runway models, they're just wanting to get in and out of there. But it's great when they, you get a character that's really taken. Another thing that I love about Battle of Brushes is that uh, the people I have judge are the people that are trying to get jobs from when they graduate. So it, it's a great connection for them. It's also good for my colleagues that are judging it because they end up finding who are the bright ones, you know, mm -hmm. to cherry pick. There's always a place for a new person. And so there's lots of contestants that have gone on to work. Uh, Daniel Parker, just a few years ago, he was judging for me here at IMATS London. Two weeks later, he had two of those contestants working with him on a major motion picture. Uh, Tuesday, I forget her, Tuesday Weld, I think her name is. V. Neal really liked her work in L.A., and so V. took her after that and used her on several films. And it, it happens quite often, actually, where it's that organic thing that happens. So I love to see them go on to, you know, to greatness. Arian Tuin, who was in one of the first years, first couple of years that we did Battle of the Brushes, he was nominated for an Oscar last year for um, Wonder. Oh, wow. You know, he's a major award winner now. It's cool to see what they go on to. Yeah, what's that There's an element of uh, who you know and not what you know. Um, so do you have any like practical advice for students how they can build their network? Definitely. That's one of their disadvantages because makeup artists are behind the scenes folks. They're not the famous, famous faces or the famous names. So they don't know who they are. And when I go speak at a school, I end up saying several names throughout it, and I'll say, okay, I'll give them a chance, you know. Who knows who Nick Dudman is? Who knows who Bill Corso is? And they don't know, and those are major leaders in our industry. So I do that to kind of bring some emphasis to show that 
in order to make use of opportunities, you need to know who the players are. Uh, 23 years I've been interviewing makeup artists. There's probably several hundred I've interviewed around the world. And their stories are all unique because it's an organic path, unlike being an accountant or something where it's very linear. Mm -hmm. And But there's two common denominators I find in every single of those successful artists. They had, at some point there was a preparation and there was also opportunity. And it's when those came together, that's where you had success. People that are in school are preparing. That's the lion's share of their preparation. They're learning technique, they're learning some etiquette and it gleaming some of those bits. But if they are fully prepared and they got their kit and their portfolio and they've been trained, they need that opportunity. They need to go get their foot in the door. If they don't get opportunity, then they're just stuck on the starting line. And there's other times when the, the opportunity is there, but the preparation hasn't been, so they don't have the skill to pull it off. Or one of the real sad ones is there's an opportunity and they didn't realize it was an opportunity. And, and some of that comes down to not knowing who the players are. I use an analogy of being at the grocery store in the vegetable aisle and you're looking at carrots and there's this person that's looking at tomatoes and this person can change your life, your career. But if you don't know who they are, they're just somebody looking at tomatoes and it never happens. So I encourage them to, to have business cards. A lot of students don't. I'd say less than 10%. I've seen it where a seasoned pro will ask somebody for a card. Oh, uh, uh, you know, they don't have it. That's a missed opportunity. Another thing is that cards can get abused too. Once they have a card, they're just like trying to, you know, coming up to people and say, hey, and then they're immediately like being that person, like the people giving out leaflets in the street, you know, mm -hmm. and who wants to get approached by those people? And it feels the same way if you're that. Especially if you're a decision maker that hires folks, get hit on a lot. So I engage them as an artist. And it's a great way for Battle of the Brushes because then they can bring their model up to, like a Daniel Parker in that case, and say, I know that you judge the makeup. Could you please give me your critique of what you think I could do better in that? And so then they're, now they're using that critical eye and they're, one, they're gaining great input. This is highly valuable advice. But also that veteran is looking at that and, and assessing the work in, in person instead of just in a photo, getting to see them and also getting to see that person too. Are they a reasonable human being? Are they someone that could be trusted to work with talent? Or are they going to be someone that embarrasses them? You know, so they're making a judgment call. And I've seen where they'll do that and then end up liking what they see and they seem pretty cool and then they'll ask them for that card. So I'm it. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. in that. So by Makeup Artist Magazine, they can learn who the players are. They can find out who that is. I tell them to do some healthy stalking. You know, IMATS is coming, go to the website, see who the speakers are, because you know these people are going to be in the room. Learn that person, see what they look like, know their work, and to actually be able to give good compliments. Don't just say, I like your work. That's kind of ass-kissing. It may not be mm -hmm. genuine. You know, it's not legit. You know, be intentional and specific about the compliment. You know, like uh, Bill Corso, he did Lemony Snicket Fortunate Events. Just to say, I really love your work you did with Jim Carrey on that. And I really like the coloring you did on this. And like, how did you go about that? So when you, when you do that, then, they, then the compliment is genuine.
Thank you. So a lot of students tend to do a lot of free work to build up their mm -hmm. portfolio and their experience. When do you draw the line and start charging people? Yeah, it's different for everybody. <laughs> everybody, unless you're just really blessed, but actually most folks don't. You know, it's you're trying to create. Well, you're, one, you're trying to gain work experience. Two, you're you're needing to get more portfolio. You're needing to have more of it to build up on there, and it's hard to do that in the beginning. Uh, it's good to at least get paid a kit rental fee. So if you're going to go work on a project and you're using your makeup and you're using your disposables, Kleenex puffs, sponges, you know, it's all of that. You shouldn't have to pay if uh, it is for an actual project that will be will commerce in some way. Then at least they can cover that so it covers your gas money and what you paid for that on there. If somebody's not willing to pay a case rental, eh, maybe it's maybe it's not the job. And it'll there'll be different layers. It's not all of a sudden you're working for free and all of a sudden you're charging top dollar. There's going to be some jobs that you're going to want to take because you really want to work with that person or that project has some personal value for you that you might be willing to do that. I even know that people that are award winners will do certain things for Maybe not free, but a, a, a really, really different rate because they just want to be a part of that project. So, you know, it's, there's, I don't think there's a rule for it or a, like a formula. I think it's when, you know, you want to start charging as soon as you can in there so that you, you're being, once uh, you have enough skill where it's being appreciated, you don't want really to be a doormat. But yeah, it'll, it'll be different. In some situations you'll charge and some won't, and eventually you'll just move away from those freebies. I'm sorry if you're looking for the form and I don't have it. Yeah. And also another question from the students is, how do you sort of gain confidence when you first start out in the industry? What advice would you give? It's what made you feel on the inside, so we need to separate that. Okay. There's that that's on the inside and there's what you present. They need to be two different things. As an artist, artists all struggle with insecurities. It's a matching set that goes with that. And so people are so emotionally tied to their work. Even within a makeup, so they can start off doing it and you're thinking, oh, it's going to be great. And then all of a sudden, oh, it's just looking like crap. I'm like, oh, it's not good. I don't know what I'm doing. You got all that. And then also, you go, oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. Feeling good. And then it goes over again. You go through the roller coaster. And you can have that emotional musical chairs with that all within one makeup. It helps as you get further along and you realize that even though you're not feeling great about the makeup in the moment, you're able to, to fix it or at least for it to be there or realize it's just you. That's the interior part of it. If you're more front-facing what you're showing to the client and the rest of that, they want more confidence and you don't want to be putting your insecurity out there because sometimes they'll use that against you. But, you know, so you don't want that to be manipulated and exploited. Create a buffer. There's a great old-time makeup artist, a guy named Lynn Reynolds, long, long past. And I had him at uh, one of the craft meetings I do for Hollywood. I used to do for Hollywood makeup artists, but it's for the union there. One of, it was a great piece of advice he gave. He said, somebody asked him, what do you do if there's something that happens that's kind of unexpected and it's a big deal and kind of an emergency, like, like the bald cap ripped? And he said, well, this is what you do. You know, you're, you're off on set and then an AD or a production assistant comes and says, Hey, I need to let you know that the bald cap ripped on that. He says, what well, you do, buy yourself a little time. And he says, okay, I'm going to go wash my hands, and then I'll come over and take a look. Who is going to tell a makeup artist they can't wash their hands? No one's going to. So by doing that, it gives them a minute to think about what he's going to do and contemplate uh, options. 
and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do, take him back to the trailer, blah, 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 blah. And then all of a sudden he appears to be like, oh, he's just got the answers. Look at that. And it, what a simple thing, washing your hands. Just creating time for yourself to give confidence to those who hire you. Thank you. Thank you. So going back to Battle of the Brushes, do you have any last comments for our students who would like to enter and do well? Yeah, I would say this, that uh, last year, it was great having Tara with me all day yesterday. I learned a lot about what was happening last year. Uh, she was the only Brit that competed in her category. So she was one of seven. Everybody else, two were from Australia, one was from New Zealand. They were, it's a multinational competition. Those people spent thousands of pounds to come and be in this competition. Everybody at your school, it's a short car ride. It's easy. It costs you a fraction of that. So you get a chance to win thousands of pounds and, and cash and prizes. You get to connect with the, the leaders of the industry and have your work seen around the world and opportunity. So you can do that or you can rearrange your sock drawer. Why wouldn't everyone be trying to be in that? Not that I need them to be. We'll have enough people always, but you're going to miss 100% of the ones you don't swing at. Any top tips for our students wanting to enter? When you send in the pictures, don't print them out on regular paper like yeah. this. I hate those. And then I think, why are people still doing mm -hmm. that? It doesn't represent their work well, and I can't tell what I'm looking at. So use, use photo paper or, or have them professionally printed out, something, whatever it is. Quality control. It's your work. You want it to be seen well. Don't put glitter on the damn picture. <laughs> We turn pages and glitter those clouds everywhere and it gets on everything and that's in our conference room and you can never get to fully go away Fighting you wet. yeah oh there's this one on the form you can fill out which shows you want to be considered for and that person selected all of them so every time I for a year every time I was doing a selection process there was that portfolio talk to the talk to your tutors talk to them ask them which photos that you should put in listen to them they know what they're talking about yeah just get some input on it and if a, they say a photo shouldn't be in there don't put it in there don't need blood and guts photos regardless of the category even if it's prostate character I don't need that I want to I need to see if can you take something artificial and make it look like it's a living breathing part of that person's face that's what I want to see bald caps are actually highly underappreciated there's 50 different ways a bald cap can just go sideways on you and be a mess. You can straight, you know, put it on, then it relaxes, so now there's wrinkles, or the thing starts to creep because the adhesive's not keeping it there, or, or you cut it too high, and then all of a sudden there's this hair you're seeing there. You gotta, then you put some glasses on it with some sides on it that wide to try to hide it. Mm -hmm. I know all the tricks. Don't Photoshop your photos. Let me see honest photos. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank, yeah. thank, thank you. you. Okay. That's good. That's good. podcast we'd like to quickly give you a few reminders about the activities we have coming up. I'm at and the Battle of Brushes so the deadline to apply for Battle of Brushes is the 15th of April and this year's dates for the IMATS trade show are from the 17th to the 19th of May 2019. Good luck and thank you all for listening. Thank you.